Alright, hello everyone and welcome back to Left Inside. I'm Dermot, I'm your host for today and I'm joined again by Paul Murphy. Hello again. So, making their podcast debuts, Samuel Saeed. Hello. And Nicole McCarthy. Hello. So we are in the fifth week of lockdown and we're going to be taking a break from government information to have a little chat about something just as uncertain. Uh, the impact of coronavirus on the economy. But firstly, how is everyone getting on? I had a trip into the doll today and uh, it almost felt like normality because I was getting like non-answers from various ministers. So it was, so like it all melted away when you're sitting there waiting <laughs> for people to answer and they just don't answer for for a minute. Oh, I seen you had Leo Varadkar sweating there in the doll today, Paul. Well, we'll come back to that. I think that's on our agenda. And we're going to deal with that. <laughs> I think we're jumping ahead. Before getting into like... Yeah, too yeah, excited. You're very eager. It's an exciting, exciting list of topics that we have um but before getting into the kind of real meat i think we might get a few takes on things like that so obviously there it's likely that the government uh is extending lockdown and over the last week they've kind of been sounding off on their reasoning and uh justifying it by saying that people have been a bit too lax with social distancing measures and that's obviously been called out but what what do people make of that i mean like you can see that it is busier out and about but I feel like the real issue is that we're just not testing people. I mean, I, I think there is a big, um, or there was a big campaign to prepare for people to blame themselves for the lockdown being extended. And it's all built on this thing. You go on Twitter and it's just full of people being, oh, there's more people out. And I agree, there are more people out. Like when I go for my walk, there's more people out. But I also think like, there are more people out. Like they're not at work. They're not spreading the virus to other people they're out overwhelmingly with their family units and whatever and i don't mean like keeling style family units of 50 plus workers i mean actual nuclear families or like whatever like family situation people have but real families uh you know they're not at work they're not spreading the virus like and like i, I think exactly as you say like you need to have testing i need to have contact tracing because if they don't have those things then once they lift off to any degree then the virus could spread very rapidly and before they know it they're in a crisis uh, situation or we're in a crisis situation well like it, it is clear to me that you know people there is an increasingly like non adherence to the lockdown measures if you look at for example the the, the irish seismological survey i think is what they're called they have like well, they can they can tell how many people are moving around essentially based on like seismic uh, mm. waves or measurements. And after the lockdown was introduced, plummeted it down and it's been increasing steadily ever since to like it's twice now as much as it was when the lockdown was first introduced. Uh, and what percentage is it though of of what it was? It seems, before, it seems like? about half from what I could see. Just by, okay. by, by, by looking at my, my naked eye, so I'm not sure like how scientific I my analysis is there. I'm not a geologist or whatever it is they are over there. Sorry, uh, but I think it it is uh, increasingly going the case that people are breaking their lockdown. I think it has, and it's been pointed out a, a bit over the last week, that things like that have kind of been used to distract from the fact that the government haven't met their targets that they initially um, pointed towards at this stage. Um, there's been a failure to meet promised level of testing, a shortage of lab materials, delay in results, and all this is, is kind of the determining factor in why, why we need to extend the lockdown. Because with that, you at least have, you can be confident that people are, are being treated and tested, and, and it really is kind of, shortening the the time frame that we're working with but without that it's it's just not happening like my mom had tested positive for covid and um, so she was tested the day after paddy's day 
Um, two or three days after she was referred, she had her test results back five days later, did her quarantine, and that was fine. Uh, so she was over in the Tala Centre, whereas now they've closed a lot of centres around the place. So people who are in Tala who need to be tested, who don't drive, like my mother, she had to walk over to the place. Um, you're literally not given the option to get tested as well as there being reduced numbers testing as well. So I don't know, it's just an absolute mess in my opinion. I, I was at a HSE briefing a couple of days ago and you know this big figure that they've been, they've kind of trailed a figure of 100,000 a week a couple of, not just a couple of times, loads of times. And they've sometimes said, oh, 15,000 a day, 100,000 a week, whatever. But the total test that they've done overall, this is a couple of days ago, is 133,000. So the amount that they're saying that they should be able to do in a week is all they've done up until this point. And they're at an average of something like five or 6,000 a day. So they're like a substantial degree off. And they're still trying to like confuse things because they say, oh, well, we don't necessarily want to do the test. We want to have the capacity to do the test. But it's clear that there is still a capacity issue in terms of the testing. There's also even just like a lack of follow-up after the testing. So my mom was called by the HSE on a Sunday morning. They said, look, you have COVID. Um, and then over the course of that day, she had maybe two or three phone calls from them. And, you know, she explained her situation that she'd been isolating since she had experienced symptoms. And the advice was literally just, okay, so when you are fever-free for five days, um, you know, and you've done your two weeks, off you go. So it was just this really weird contrast of like on the Saturday evening, she was like locked in her bedroom with, you know, a, a serious virus. And then on the Monday morning, she went to work in a doctor's surgery. Do you know that kind of way? There was no follow up. They don't like, and like the figures they have for people recovering, like they didn't contact her to see if she had any kind of recovery or, you know, so like they're not recording things accurately at all. I remember when the, the first crisis in testing was happening and this is when they're saying, oh, we're going to go for 10,000 a day this week. And then that's, but then obviously they hit a bottleneck where they didn't have enough testing kits. And then they narrowed the number of people that were allowed to be on it. Now, myself and my two parents were waiting for a test at that period of time. And myself and my dad got kicked off the waiting list. Now, thankfully, none of us were, were positive, but my mom went, uh, I think waited about a week before between or two weeks nearly can't remember exactly now it was, it was back in early March uh, before applying for the test and getting a test and I had to wait for another two or even three weeks again on top of that it was like it was practically three or four weeks of waiting like you can obviously see that people are itching to get back on the outside and then you obviously have to push from businesses to open up as soon as possible it, it's kind of the tension between ensuring that public health is protected while also dealing with people's like the issues that just arise from sitting in your house constantly um whether it's mental health or, or, or just getting a bit stir crazy uh through the week but it's already come out i think that tension but a big part like a huge part of that tension is capitalism like i, I accept there is some real tension of like people themselves you know mental health issues being isolated etc that's that's real but the, the main drive is to drive for profit on behalf of businesses and from ordinary people from the fact that you need to work to get an income, to survive, etc. And I think like money is playing a huge role in these considerations. That that's that's just the truth, that we have an economy built around profit and that is weighing very heavily and the construction industry federation and IBEC, etc., people who want to start the economy back and 
that is unfortunately being weighed against public health and it shouldn't be public health should simply come first and be public needs yeah and i kind of i think this relates into the broader kind of chat that we want to have today about the framing like obviously there's there's going to be a lot of harm to the economy after coronavirus it's obviously disrupted businesses through the country um employment is expected to rise to 24.7 percent by june which is major when you compare it to the highs of 16 percent which was reached uh, at the peak of the 2008 crash you have the department of finance budgeting additional spending of 8 billion dealing with the crisis and 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 kind of the framing has already set in with the government kind of bringing out their uh, stability program update last week uh showing kind of the cost of the recent measures and a kind of grim forecast um on just the cost of handling the crisis and the implications that that's going to have for the next year and while the government initially responded with the unemployment and illness payment of 350 euro per week they've been setting the mood music a bit recently with talks of tapering off welfare payments and the talks about the dire need to return to a balanced budget um, so what what do people think is likely uh, in in the coming weeks and, and months in dealing with this well, it seems clear to me that there's going to be some debate opening up in society about like how are you going to pay for this bill that's going to come from this massive public expenditure to deal with the coronavirus. And actually, should you pay for that bill at all uh, is, is the other question, or who's going to pay for it? Uh, it seems like if you look at countries like the United States, uh, Japan, certain European countries, China, there's going to be a very different approach taken in those countries to what you'd see in Ireland. And mainly those countries are just going to go into deeper and deeper levels of debt. And they can afford to do that because they're major industrialized countries, uh, which have significant economic influence and power. Whereas Ireland, on the other hand, is it's going to go into huge amounts of debt. And then what's it going to do? It's going to have to pay it back at some point. And then that signals to me, to a certain degree, anyways, austerity measures are going to come down the pipeline. And then it's when are they going to be implemented uh, and and how are they going to target is an interesting question. Well, seeing the way Leo reacted today to the whole airline question thing, the way he was like pushing that, you know, they have, you know, provided so much payment to workers and they're really looking after workers. I can guarantee that tune is going to be sung a hell of a lot again when they're looking to freaking tax us for what they've taken, um, you know what I mean, or for what they've given. Like there's, that's going to be brought up for years and years, but like, how could you not provide something to people in that kind of situation? I just, like, there is no other option. So it's not like they were being a really, you know, good for the people kind of country. It would have been embarrassing for Ireland to not support thousands and thousands of people who've been being laid off due to the pandemic. Like. And, and you see, you look at how they're like, how they're, su- they're like supporting people. They are doing it via bailouts for private industry because that was the thing for actors like no we're not bailing out private business we're bailing out workers etc etc um but like the private hospitals private hospitals are getting massive bailouts right now where it looks like the private hospitals are going to get more revenue now like this year these months under this deal than they would have at normal times and it looks like a whole bunch of that money will go to private hospitals here and then be filtered off to dennis o'brien owned larry goodman owned other people owned 
uh, companies in Luxembourg and elsewhere in order to avoid paying tax. And um, they're going to bail out the airline industry. Are, are you allowed to mention Dennis O'Brien's name on this podcast? Like, uh, uh, We're going to see. <laughs> we'll see if it makes it onto Spotify. <laughs> ah, we'll, we'll, we'll get, if this doesn't make its way to Spotify. We'll get, we'll get a letter in the post. Jesus, you'll be slagging Joan Burton next. Leave it in, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's mad that like they couldn't even commit to a one-tier health service in a pandemic, and instead bend over backwards to ensure like the private interest controlling the hospitals continued to make profit from the situation. And I think that just kind of shows that first on the agenda agenda again will be mass curtailment of public spending, mass cutting of financial programs. People need to live and. Max, the continuation of maximization of profits for for business big business um and, and the interests that have the biggest say it also for me kind of would land further like justice i suppose for those people who are like oh you can't be taxing apple and the big corporations or they'll leave and i feel like any kind of economic instability plays that into the hand of you know big business because they're like yeah don't tax us because we will leave and that threat is overhanging there and that's so many jobs and you know the instability that exists already people are going to be trying to avoid it as much as possible when obviously one of the alternatives that we would offer would be to tax big businesses to make sure that we don't pay for the bailout as workers but you can just see that being flipped in the media so that we would never question that again be good if someone wrote an article about like what the alternatives are to uh (laughs) <laughs> to to the current to God, the current model. Really, really handy, wouldn't it? And if they'd come on and talk to you on this. Podcast, Did you write such an article, Nicole? That'd be super. <laughs> I may have. It's, it may be on the Rise website if anyone's looking to read it. <laughs> um, and linked in show notes, I presume we can do that. Oh, we have show notes capacity. Yeah. It will be linked, will be linked. Nicole's been very gracious and written an article specifically for this podcast uh, discussing the issues around who should pay and the kind of alternatives to austerity or, or coming austerity. Um, so I think first off, Nicole, you kind of drew comparisons in your article between recent statements by the government and those that were were brought out prior to the, uh, or after the crash in 2008. So what's your kind of take on how it's been set uh, currently? Well, I mean, this kind of idea of, you know, it's going to take years to pay it off and kind of like setting it up before there's even any kind of real figures. And then the Minister for Finance uh, saying that we'll never return to the old normal or something like that. Like it's as if we had this old normal life of absolute luxury as workers, you know, that kind of way. Um, I just also found it interesting, there's, um, in the Irish Times, there was the acting chairperson of the Irish Fiscal Advisory um, Council, Mm -hmm. and he had the same kind of tune, you know, that kind of way, somebody's going to have to pay for this, it'll have to be somehow through taxation, and just kind of starting off that narrative again, because people did accept it last time, you know, so they're trying to lay the grounds for that, like, definitely, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a, like, rewriting the script, because even before the pandemic broke out, the meagre benefits which had returned after the 2008 crash had bypassed a large portion of our society, and will now continue to do so, because that's just kind of how the system operates, and that's what, what these people consider normal, Um I mean, even last year, Task had brought out things just stating that Ireland has like the highest proportion of workers on low pay in Europe, with approximately like 23% of Ireland's full-time workforce on low pay. 
and I'm, and I mean that seems to be the normal that people want to return to. Um, but you've actually highlighted some alternatives in your article um, to this kind of process. Um, if you want to so enlighten us, I suppose the the Apple tax is a big one. Um, as I mentioned earlier, with the big corporations, um, like we literally have a court case, um, like with the EU Court of Justice, where this account uh, there's an escrow account with. 13 but actually I think it's 14.3 billion with the taxation on it as interest well. yeah the interest that's what it is. yeah mm-hmm. um, including interest tell you, my interest in my bank account doesn't build up that quickly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of them higher rates where you put in when you put in billions yeah. in. <laughs> they might not even charge a fees if you put in over 10 billion I hear that and you don't yeah, use too many contacts it's ridiculous just get an easy 10 billion from loan from your parents or something so I mean the fact that there was a Fine Gael government um, in 2016 and a, a majority who voted for us to push back against taking this taxation I feel like that's been a point of outrage for the public since then so now at a time that we need something like that it's it's a big time to be pushing the idea of us getting our government to drop this case and try and take this money and try and make sure that we do tax corporations in the future. And another one is, um, like, there is still enormous wealth in the country. So Ireland is, we always put this on Facebook and people are always like, no, that's stupid, it's not. Ireland is, I think it's the sixth richest country in the world. And that's like GDP per capita. We also have the sixth, sixth highest number of millionaires per capita. Fifth. Fifth, we got show notes saying fifth. Sorry, my apologies. I was just being modest about what we were. I didn't I didn't want to boast about Aaron's wealth. Um, so we're the fifth highest, okay? And every time like we put that out there, people are like, that's stupid. Sorry, what way did they say it? For those of you who think we're stupid for that, I'm going to explain what per capita means. Per capita means that you divide it by the number of people in the country, and it's on that basis. So Ireland is obviously a small country, but relatively speaking, is quite wealthy. And part of that is the millionaires. So one of the ideas Nicole put forward is the idea of an emergency levy on millionaires, an emergency in millionaires, uh, millionaires tax of 5%, which would raise 8 billion, which would, for example plug the deficit already built up so far in the crisis they're talking they spent about 8 billion so far they're going to spend over 20 billion in the in the end that we think we should be using that wealth for the good of society rather than pe- allowing people like that to hoard it while other people are facing crisis well, I think these people you know that you know say that's stupid you know they have a bit of a point uh, in the sense that like Ireland's GDP measurements are stupid they are completely ridiculous massively overinflated and it's because of our really just stupid like irrational neoliberal economic model which just encourages for, uh, foreign na- uh, multinational companies to come in here and use ireland as a tax haven they root all these profits that they make globally through ireland okay ready i, I googled it i googled it because you have a point obviously but ireland's gni star per capita right so gni star is a more accurate thing we're still we're ranking very similar to germany right so we're still a wealthy country like, I agree there's massive distortions of GDP, etc. But Ireland is a very wealthy country. It's just that most of us don't have that wealth. I mean, if you take the... Like, I think the whole question of nationalisation and public ownership is going to come back on the agenda again in this crisis. Just like in the last crisis. I mean, before the last crisis, it was really a pretty, like, minority sport to call for nationalisation of banks. Like, it was seen as a bit mad, you know? And then they nationalised all the banks. Um, And so I did an interview during the week with Pat Kenny where he clearly thought I was absolutely mad in calling for renationalization of Aer Lingus. But I guarantee you that, like, a reasonable percentage of airlines around the world are going to be nationalised in the course of the next year. They're the banks of this 
crisis. But the point is, are they going to be nationalized just to bail out the CEOs? Are the workers going to pay the price? Or are we going to take the opportunity to nationalize them, put workers in control, and then put a plan in place with workers and paying no price and being guaranteed decent income to actually shift to a sustainable transport model, and which, to be honest, involves a substantially less number of, of flights. Well, Aer Lingus screwed me up. They sent me an email and they were like, oh, you know, we can give you different dates or this cool voucher with an extra 10%. And yeah, there's okay. no option of a refund put in there at all. Yes, and me as the consumer, knowing that they have all the power as a big corporation, I panicked and I said, yeah, send me the voucher. And now they're uh, like, oh, yeah, we'll send you the voucher. And they haven't done anything. Dope, yeah. I know. I'm a fool. That's and no. I'm sure loads of I people I don't blame do ordinary people who are listening now, just to be clear. But you, Nicole. Just me. I should have known better. <laughs> well, maybe if you had raised this in the doll earlier, Paul, then we would have all been made aware of it sooner and could have not said yes to the vouchers. So maybe it's actually your fault in the end. The law is that, that you're entitled to a full cash refund within seven days. Um, of your flight being cancelled. Um, but but what emerged this morning, as front page of papers today, is that um, the Irish government, you know, this, this huge scandal is going on. The Irish government, along with 11 other governments, writes to the European Commission and says to the European Commission, can you stop that law, basically? Don't remove the right of companies to... Uh, or remove the obligation on companies to provide a refund and instead just allow them to have a voucher. Basically force consumers to give a massive bailout to airline companies. But then when I asked Fragger in the doll about it today, he he basically, he just explained what the law is and said it couldn't be changed and sure, why would anyone want to change it? I was like, but your government wants to change it. Oh my it. God, he absolutely panicked, Paul. He freaked out. He obviously like hadn't ever thought about it before or something or just didn't think he'd know. <laughs> but, his, but how has he not thought He's about like, it? Like? Well, as far as I'm aware, the law can't be changed retrospectively. Well, maybe check into what the government is up to then, Leo, and that would be fucking fantastic. <laughs> like, these, these fucking people, right, these fucking airlines, like, they're, they are so outrageous in every in every capacity, right? Because like, I know this, this is an anecdote. My own brother, he was, uh, this isn't based in the European Union now. This, uh, he was stuck out in Cambodia when this whole thing blew off. And every other day, these airliners are like scheduling flights to go from here, it's like to go from Cambodia back to Europe or whatever, so we can get home, charging thousands of euros for each of these flights. And they put them up, they have people buy them, and then they cancel the flights. Knowing they've had these people selling these flights, selling these tickets at extraordinary prices, knowing they were going to cancel them, and then wouldn't give refunds for them. And it's just, it's just outrageous. Like these, these, like these completely parasites want to get bailed out by people like, no, sorry, just take your shift and we own it now. Thank you. And in three months' time, a bunch of these airlines are going to go bankrupt. And if you've got a voucher, and even if that voucher in theory entitles you to a cash refund, well, then you're going to be in the queue with a bunch of other creditors who are looking for their money and you're not going to be very high up in the queue and you're not going to get your money. Ah, sure, look, they'll have Aer Lingus nationalised by then. I should be grand. Yeah, so I think it's clear that if we fall back into the same fiscal norms that govern the 2008 crash or, or after that or which allowed the worsening situations in housing, health and the environment, that the, the recovery will just be harder. And it also doesn't take into account the costs of not taking action in things like this. Like, I think there's kind of been a good discourse recently. Good discourse. Around yeah. the Greens going into government with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. In What's terms a, what does of, good discourse mean? Um, <laughs> you and your postmodern speak. We're going we're gonna to squeeze it out of you. You're cancelled. Discussion. <laughs> it's synonym for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> discourse. I'm sitting there with a, a 
thesaurus. <laughs> well established, well established podcast term. Fuck, this is all gonna get. This is all getting fucking caught. Like, <laughs> right? There's been good discussion around the issues with them going in because if they're not willing to even match like 7% because they say that it'll cost too much, they're not taking into account the cost of not doing it. And that's where the discussion has kind of come out, I think, in terms of if you get out of this crisis without being willing to spend spend it on the necessary things, we're just going to end up in an in a environmental crisis down like very shortly down the line. Not to, not to mention that we've already had crisis in housing, a yearly one in health under the same government at the moment. It's almost like capitalism is a real crisis-ridden system. When you think well, about it. it's systematic, and it's a return to that. Um, but like the green fin of all thing is uh, <laughs> the Greens are like, right, this is this is it. This is our red lines now. If you want to get us into negotiations, this is it. In particular, the first one, the first one, the seven percent. That's that's it. An absolute red line, major. And then Vita von Vinnie go right back and be like, well, like we, we say yes to the easy ones that are like. Oh, Major. commit to doing yeah. X, Y, and Z. Okay, yeah, we commit to get rid of, rid of direct provision. Yeah, they just commit to doing it again, won't do anything about it. But then on like the kind of harder ones that are more meaningful, on 7%, they're like, we'd like to talk about it more. Um, and there is almost no question, I think, that Ryan is going to get the Green Party to be like, oh yes, we should go and talk about it in more detail. When the whole point was meant to be 7%, nothing less, we want agreement, otherwise we're not talking. And then they're going to rope them into talks, um, and then they'll try and use that to, to settle to the Green Party. Well, like the Green Party, right, so the Green Party is like, you know, this this parent who wants to punish their child, they're really, they're just bluffing about it, you know, it's like, oh, if you don't stop that, I'll really get angry with you, and you know, and that's really just, like, that's how they operate. You don't really, there's no red lines of them, you know, like, I don't think their membership are that bad. Like, ah, yeah, the well, membership, the membership yeah. is, is is more diverse than that. But we talking about Eamon Ryan. Yeah, of, the of course. Really just the like, kind of conservative backbone of it. They will they will sell out anybody for for a sniff of power. Let them get into it. There's a good article by um, Carl Kinsler on Joe.ie today, which the headline. Why is Joe.ie the main source of information? Oh, it's the young people with the, disc- <laughs> with the discourse. The best. The best kind of discourse happens on Joe.ie. Um, but the headline of this particular <laughs> discursive piece is um, a simple warning for the Green Party, don't screw up, screw us on this. And it basically warns that that's what they're going to do, is a warning from the future. Yeah, uh, but you can also see, like the media have kind of been doing support for Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, because they're subjecting that 7% demand to intense scrutiny. They want the Greens to ride it backwards and forwards. How are we going to get this done? When they won't subject a similar scrutiny to any policies by the government because they know that this is outside of the realm of what's dictated as being normal. That this measure is seen as like radical, even though 8% I think is the dictated, uh, or sorry, the necessary requirement to avoid the catastrophe that that's kind of outlined. 7% is being made the sticking ground and i think there's a a back and forth in the greens whether or not to falter in the face of this type of thing and like if you follow the kind of good side of it of the greens on twitter there there does seem to be like a concerted effort to 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 maintain like a bulwark against this what's gonna happen your money your money is too much on the good side of the greens i think i don't think i don't really like the good side of the greens but i think they're gonna lose i think game ryan's gonna win it and then you think it splits, or do you think they maintain that? Who knows? Hopefully, the hopefully, hopefully people <laughs> draw the conclusion and break from the Green Party and help to build a mass eco-socialist force. That's what we need. Well, hopefully, there's a lot more like people tuned into what they're up mm-hmm. to because they gave them a vote. 
you know, because like if they gave the Green Party their vote in the hope they'd make a difference and then to see them not doing anything with that and going into coalition with Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, hopefully it'll kind of make a few more people politically active and a bit more engaged for the next elections to make sure their vote is used wisely, you know? Like, I think the Greens, the Greens are kind of, you know, doomed if they do and doomed if they don't in a certain sense from probably a kind of, you know, practical perspective for, for, for them. And the sense that if they go into government, obviously the left wing people in their own organization, but also who support them externally and who are like activists who are close to the Greens will, will get sick of them uh, and they'll draw the necessary lessons, I hope. But if they don't go into government, their voter base, which I believe is, is probably drawn predominantly from more middle class, well off, like ex-FG people, uh, will just desert them. And I think, like, either way, if uh, they are going to get damaged in some capacity, and it's a matter of, you know, are they going to get damaged selling everything out and, like, destroying the environment, or are they going to get damaged sticking to their guns uh, and trying to be principal environmentalists? There is an alternative, though. The, the alternative is to not go into government, stake a claim and say we're fighting for a left-wing government and a left-wing government's the only government that's going to actually stop shot in LNG get like at least seven percent that's not enough we'd argue for ten percent a year Mm -hmm. and have the kind of radical and put forward an eco-socialist program and actually popularize that and on that basis like it's true they'd lose some of their current support base that like the element of their support base, which is like Fine Gaelers with sandals or bikes or bikes and sandals for example and but they, they could win on alternative support base. Um, and actually, they could win, for example, they could win some support from Sinn Féin. Um, Sinn Féin's program on the environment is quite weak. And actually, a lot of yeah. Sinn Féin voters would understand we need to have a program. And it's because Sinn Féin are also based on staying within the framework of the capitalist system, etc., etc. And you have to be willing to, to break with that. Yeah, I know a lot of working class people mm-hmm. who voted Sinn Féin Green Party. Yeah, it was a common... Like, that was a common yeah, mix. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And with that whole movement towards, like, a transfer left, like, I think there was a coherency in the demands, even in the faults of, like, Sinn Féin or, or something like that, to, to mix it in. But I think what Paul's talking about in between that kind of... The two choices. I think it is kind of being formulated within... In some sectors of the Green Party. Like, not as such a... Not a strong case or anything like that. Like, I've seen today... One of their councillors, Liam Quaid, t- uh, tweeted out... The Green Party faces an identity challenge. Do we grow into a broad, enduring political movement... That drives real social as well as environmental change? Or do we hitch ourselves to business as usual politics... For an adjustment to the forestry model and some nice cycle lanes? And I think that was in retweeting... Uh, one of Saoirse McHugh's th- uh, tweets as well so there is like a little bit of a movement against mm-hmm. that i think there is but it's just whether or not it, it actually persists and if it it prevails don't, don't get me wrong I, I think there's a very healthy thing happening there clearly like um but i, I think the authority of Eamon ryan very healthy discourse even a very healthy discourse <laughs> <even>. <laughs> but they're, they're gonna like throw the authority of Eamon ryan into the balance and they're going to say, look, we got 10 years, blah, blah, blah. You know, you could write the script and it, it isn't yeah. actually logical because the 10 years, they've been going to waste time. And the other downside is that the environmental movement will be somewhat damaged and it'll Destroyed, be associated yeah. with like yeah. anti with a pro-austerity policies, greenwashing, etc. It, it won't be good in terms of the building of the movement that we need. Um, but that's why I'm not so optimistic. But we'll see. Oh, I think I could- I'm I'm not necessarily optimistic or pessimistic about the the prospects here with the Green Party. I think it could legitimately go either way in the sense that like I could see you know Eamon Ryan being you know the the odious right winger that he is 
actually not having as much authority as people might perceive him to to from the outside and maybe he doesn't win the, the argument in there but he doesn't actually decisively lose either and so we might have the green party not entering into a government but still not fundamentally changing its 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 uh, politics either if you get what i mean uh so i think that that could, it could go really either way and you might actually have the green party abstaining from government uh instead of of just completely selling itself out so i think that about does us for this week. We've discourse. jam-packed this episode. Um, discourse so coming think, out of the, the ages of With discourse, quality discourse. Maybe we should rename the podcast Discourse. Left Discourse. It's been a very interesting discourse, guys. <laughs> if the word discourse isn't in the podcast at least three or four times, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> we should, this, that should be the title. I think the title should be Discourse. Discourse question mark. It's a good title. <laughs> Quote. <laughs> and that's why we're not in charge of picking yeah. the title of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that about does us for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. You might do us a favor and give us a follow on social media link below and tell a friend if you enjoy the podcast. And as always, you can find more information on what we discussed in the episode description. Once again, Rise is also running a public reading group on the, of Naomi Klein's On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, which a few of us hope to pitch in on and could interest a few listeners. You'll find a link to that below as well. Goodbye for now. Take care. Bye. 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 <laughs>